Good morning, church. This morning, we're in the middle of a series called Believers in Babylon, where we're looking at the story of Daniel, who's this character who uh, was living as a, uh, in exile. Uh, the people of Israel had been taken over by a foreign uh, power by the Babylonians, and, and so the people of Israel are living in a foreign land, and, and Daniel is one of those exiles who's trying to figure out life in the midst of that new context. And I think it's been such a great series because it connects with our times so well. Because I think there's a question, a tension that many of us live with in our lives. And that tension is this. How do we live as Christians in the midst of an age where things seem to be drifting further and further from God's intention for the world? And, and we've seen in this story, just like last week with the story that Keith preached so well about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that there are times to stand up. There are times to say, we will not bow down to the statue that you force us to. And, and if it means the the, the flames, and it means the flames. But there are also times we found in this story where, where Daniel doesn't fight back. He, he finds influence through relationship that he gains with those who are in power. It's this kind of tension I think we all feel in our lives, right? In, in the job we're in, the vocation, the calling we have. What does it mean to be Christian in the midst of an age that seems to be set uh, very different from the Christian story? And so this morning, I want to I go to Daniel chapter 4 and, and Daniel chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, feel free to Put a bookmark there, uh, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But like every good sermon, it needs to start in Genesis 1, right? So we'll start there. So bookmark in Daniel 4 and 5, and then in just a moment, I want to just begin at the beginning of the story. Let's pray as we open uh, God's Word this morning. Father, we, uh, we, we do know that the story that we tell with our lives is your story. Because you're a God who never stops working, even in the midst of times and seasons where it seems that you're absent. God, you lurk in the shadows you move and you work in ways we can't always acknowledge or see until we see you in our rearview mirror, God, and see your work. And so right now in this season of, of whatever it is that we're all walking through, God, I pray that you would speak through this story of Daniel to remind us what our role is in the world, God, and the task you've given each and every one of us. Uh, this morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, in Genesis 1, God creates the world, and he calls it good. But by day 6, things have changed. There have been a lot that's brought, been brought into this world and created. And on day 6, he creates the highlight of all that, right? Humans are created in God's image. And when God sees us, he calls us very good. It's great uh, what he creates. God creates humans for a purpose. And I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1 to talk about that purpose for why he created us. This is Genesis 1. Uh, again, in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This is part of our purpose as humans. We've been created for two things that Genesis 1 talks about in particular. The first of those commands is we're to be fruitful and increase in number. And this is a command we've done quite well. We ought to pat ourselves on the back for that, right? There's a lot more people on the earth than there were just centuries ago. But there's a second command here that I'm not sure humans have carried out as well as God would have hoped. And God took a great risk when he gave us this command. And his command was to rule the earth. It's to subdue it. 
that we're to create with God in this ongoing work of creation, but we also have this task of ruling over the birds in the sea and the, the, the earth that's here. That's the task that God has given us as co-rulers with him over the world. And we haven't done the second part quite as well, have we? Because God risked a lot with this. He, he put us in charge of a lot of things. It would have been easier for him to be over on his own, but God couldn't. He doesn't work without humans, does he? He continues in the story throughout all of it, throughout the mess. He continues to work with humans, no matter the risk that it is. And, and humans are given the command to rule over the rest of creation. And as we've seen over years, that hasn't been managed all that well. History is a record of many kings and rulers and despots and emperors and, and, and all kinds of leaders, political and otherwise, who have made a mess of things in our leadership. History is that record. It tells the story of all this. And these authorities abuse their roles when they forget the thing that Daniel reminds us of again and again in the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Daniel says in the middle of that text where he's waiting on a dream interpretation and God gives it to him, he he sings a psalm of praise back to God in the midst of the storm. You remember this? And he says, God's the one who puts rulers in place. In other words, God is in control of who is in control. And that changes completely the way you see the world when you believe that to be a fact. Ultimately, God is the one who is king. He is sovereign. But God has put human rulers in place so that he can continue his work of order and justice in the world. God wants them to rule as he longs for them to, but sometimes God has to remove those leaders that he puts into place as well. Because humans who rule poorly don't rule forever. And in most chapters of the book of Daniel, we see this chapter always kind of emerge in this way. At the beginning of the chapter, the kings forget who God is, right? They're following after their own gods. They're building a statue that people have to worship. Starting a, next week, we'll talk about Daniel Lyons, and they set up a decree that you can only pray to God. But by the end of the chapter, almost every time, that king is saying, we know who God is, and he's the one who's the king of Daniel, the one who these Jewish exiles that we brought into our land, he's actually the one who's king over all. And every human ruler who rules is invited to rule with the reign and justice that God desires to bring. But when human kings forget, that God is the ultimate king and they forsake his commands and they rule unjustly, it won't be long before trouble arises and God will put a new person on the throne. Because political leaders are called to rule with justice. They're called to care for the needy in their midst. They're called to extend God's desires for the world in their area of jurisdiction. God is a God of order. And he expects for human co-rulers, whether that's political or whether that's us in our own frameworks, to lead in the ways he intends for us to, to establish order wherever we can. As I was processing that thought a few weeks ago, I was reflecting on Daniel 4 and 5, and I, I came across a couple of psalms that I thought really helped us see Daniel 4 and 5 in a new way. And so keep that bookmark in Daniel 4 and 5, but what I want to do is I want to read Daniel 4 with, alongside Psalm 1. And I want to read Daniel 5 alongside Psalm 2. And I think there's some things that get unlocked when we see how these psalms open up and the story of Daniel and these kings occurs as well. So this morning I want to read Psalm 1 first, and then we'll move over to to Daniel chapter 4, and I think you'll see some connections. This is Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates On his law, day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, 
and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like shaft that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the, the psalmist opens with this image of a tree, right? A tree that's planted by streams of water. It's firm. It stands st- firm through the storm. It's a little bit like the image that Jesus gives about after the Sermon on the Mount. It says, the wise one, one's the one who builds his house on the rock. There's a foundation. When the streams come, when the winds blow, it, it doesn't falter. But the, but the one that's built on sand, that's the foolish person in Psalm 1. It, it's going to be blown away by the storm that comes. They're like shaft that the wind blows away. And verse 6, I think, sums up this psalm quite well. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So keep that verse in mind. Keep that psalm in mind. I want this to turn over to Daniel chapter 4. It's interesting how this image of a tree actually shows up again in this story. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's excitement about God after the fiery furnace scene, it continues into chapter 4. So he's already you know, gone with the scene. If, if, well, if you're saved from the fiery furnace, there must be something to your God. I want you to hear the exclamation of, of praise that, that Nebuchadnezzar gives to the God uh, of these Jewish exiles. This is Daniel 4, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Isn't this amazing? I mean, just a few years ago, God has taken over, or, or, or Nebuchadnezzar has been used by God to punish the Israelite people for all of their idolatry and all their wrongdoing, and he takes them away from Jerusalem. He destroys the city. But now this same God who had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, I'm sure pronounced victory over their God, is now proclaiming that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, this is the God above all gods. He's the one who makes these decisions. Perhaps God is really at work, even in the midst of exile. But then King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's already had one in chapter 2, but he has another dream in chapter 4. And once again, the wise men of Babylon cannot interpret the dream. So he calls Daniel back, who had interpreted his dream earlier in chapter 2. And his dream is one of an enormous tree. It seemed to touch the sky. Its leaves are beautiful. It's fruit abundant. It provides shade and cover for the animals. It's almost like a picture of God's good world in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? A little bit like Psalm 1, this picture of a tree that's standing by streams of water that provides its fruit in season. But then a voice from heaven comes in the midst of this dream and says, Cut down the tree, let the animals flee, but leave the stump and the roots. And the dew drenched the trunk. And then the stump, or the man it represents, becomes more like an animal so that everyone knows that God is most high and sovereign over the whole earth. And Daniel knows this message is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Daniel has been taken from his homeland. Think about all the harm and the difficulty that Daniel has faced. He's he's had these scenes where his friends were thrown into the fiery furnace. Most scholars would say that Daniel was probably made to be a eunuch. He was likely castrated because the the leader who he was involved with was the chief of the eunuchs that he was working with in chapters 1. And and no king would leave a guy like Daniel around the women of his harem. Think about all that's been taken from him. His homeland, his people, the temple of God, even a chance to have children and, and to continue the command in Genesis 1 that God had brought. 
All this has been taken from him. Now, I want you to imagine all of that's been taken from you, and you're Daniel, and you get this message about this dream that basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're about to look like a wild animal. You're going to make your way with them, and your kingdom's gone unless you repent. How would you bring a message like that to a king like this? There would be a smirk on my face when I brought this to the king. There'd be a little bit of pride about the God that I serve versus this, this unrighteousness that's involved where he is. I know how I would bring this message, but I want you to notice how Daniel delivers this message to the king. It's striking to me in chapter 4. I want you to notice how Daniel delivers this message. This is verse 19, Daniel 4, verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the ground, the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. It's amazing, isn't it? Here he has this chance to deliver this message of doom for the king that had taken everything from him. What does he say? I just wish that your enemies were the one to hear this message. There seems to be this just genuine concern for Nebuchadnezzar in the scene that I can imagine handling this information far different. Daniel has a humble respect for a man who deserved none of his respect. Nebuchadnezzar was a violent man. He was a, he was a buffoon. But Daniel knew what we sometimes forget. If God is in control of who is in control, then what does that make Nebuchadnezzar? It makes him a servant to the role that God has him playing. He's a wicked king, but he's a wicked king who's been sent by God to fulfill his divine purpose, which is the punishment of Israel for the sin of its people. Daniel was not respectful because Nebuchadnezzar deserved it. Daniel was respectful because God commanded it. So what about you? I mean, it's easy in these scenes and to hear this to go and think about all the people who disrespect the leader you like, but that's not the question this morning. All of us have leaders we'd rather not follow. I'm a little bit convicted by these words this morning. What are the words that you say about the leaders that you don't like, that God has placed, either righteous or unrighteous? I'm making this point so we'll look at ourselves and consider sometimes the hateful, disrespectful things we say about the men and women we don't like. I'm convicted by Daniel's words this morning. But that's not the end of the message. He still has a message to declare. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, it's not going to go well with you. The rest of the dream is true. He's going to drive you out. You're going to live like the wild animals. This is Genesis 1 in reverse. Right? In Genesis 1, he starts with creating animals and then creates the ultimate part of his creation, humans. But in this story, the humans are becoming like animals, Nebuchadnezzar is. Humans are supposed to be the ones ruling benevolently over the creation. But like we discovered a few months ago in the idolatry series, anytime humans forget that role and no longer rule with God, Chaos is the result, and that's what happens for Babylon. But there is a word of hope 
verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. What does Nebuchadnezzar have to do for his prosperity to continue in the future? He has to admit that God in heaven is the one who rules. He has to admit that even though he is king over this entire nation and the exiles, he's not really the one in charge in the end. He must acknowledge that God's the true king. He must renounce his sins. He must be kind to the oppressed. In other words, he has not ruled well. He has not represented God's kingdom well. And God is not okay with that. He never is. Well, Nebuchadnezzar hears the message. But watch what happens just a year later, 12 months later, after he's already seen, I need to repent. I need to do what's right. Listen to this, verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my majesty, uh, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You can just see him, can't you? The pride returns to him. He's on his rooftop. He becomes arrogant. It's It's like a scene out of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When powerful People become proud and build towers and put their names on the outside of their buildings to draw attention to their power. God doesn't let it last for long. So Nebuchadnezzar loses his throne and wanders with the wild animals. But here's a quality of Nebuchadnezzar that you'll notice in chapter 4 that you won't notice with his son in chapter 5. He praises the Most High after this. And Daniel 4 ends like it begins with a psalm out of the king of Babylon's mouth. This is Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? When he acknowledges God's sovereignty, he returns to the throne for a season. You remember Psalm 1? The wicked are like shaft, they're blown away. The tree that stands by streams of water stands. This is the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. He imagines a tree in his dream, and he, like that tree, finds hardship, and he finds that when repentance happens and he admits that God's the king over heaven and all the earth, things go well with him. But Daniel 5 is a different story. Which brings me to Psalm 2. So turn with me back, if you would, to Psalm 2. I want you to hear this passage in light of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, who's the next king. Why do the nations conspire? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all 
who take refuge in him. What's Psalm 2 about? It's about this relationship between God and the kings of the earth. When human rulers try to flaunt their power in improper ways, what does God do? I love this. He laughs. He mocks them, right? I can just imagine God in the heavens chuckling from time to time. In fact, that's a helpful image that ought to bring comfort to those of you who don't know whether to laugh or cry in seasons like these, right? God thinks laughter is okay. It's okay for us to choose the same. But he also takes action, and he rebukes them in his anger. And the warning at the end of Psalm 2, I think, is a strong warning that we ought to bring with us as we read Daniel chapter 5. Kings, you ought to be wise. Be warned. You ought to serve the Lord with fear and rule with trembling. My wrath can flare up in a moment. And that's the best introduction to Daniel 5 I can give you. All it takes is a moment for God's anger to flare up at Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. He was now on the throne over Babylon. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read along. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, second time that's reminded, and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I can just see God's anger flaring up, can't you? Just imagine all that this king, Belshazzar, is doing to flaunt in the face of God. He throws his drunken feast, but that's not enough. He's got his wives. Let me remind you, plural wives that are there. He's got his concubines, plural concubines who are there. And not only that, he's taken... His father, he's gone, he's told the servants to go to the storage closet and pull up the goblets from when they had destroyed the temple. They had taken the goblets from the temple of the Lord. And they've been in storage all this time, but this is a great banquet. And so Belshazzar says, it's time to get those goblets out. We're going to drink from these goblets of wine and gold. And it moves on from there even into idolatry, worshiping these gods of iron and gold and stone. This might be the kind of moment that Psalm 2 was referring to when it said that his anger can flare up in a moment. Could Belshazzar dream up any more offensive way to gloat over Israel and their God? But in his drunken stupor, he begins to see what looks like a hand that's writing on the wall some words. Belshazzar watches the fingers of the hand, and there's four words that are on the wall. And I love the way the Bible describes his response to this in verse 6. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. This is all we can hope for out of our kings. So he gets his wise men together to interpret the words, because apparently he's forgotten that those wise men are worthless when it comes to this kind of thing. But there's a wise woman in the kingdom who says, you know, I think your father had a guy named Daniel. Maybe he's the one you ought to call up. I think he can interpret all this for you. And watch how Daniel reveals Belshazzar's pride for what it is. This is verse 18 of chapter 5 and following. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from the royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived 
with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets them uh, over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, uh, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. But Daniel's not quite as honoring to Belshazzar as he was to Nebuchadnezzar, right? He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm sorry I have to deliver this message. He just kind of delivers the message. Apparently, he didn't consult his father to see what he should have done. He didn't follow the Lord and explains the writing on the wall. And Daniel is finally honored and put in a high place in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar is slain. And the Babylonians are taken over by a new kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. And we'll get to their king, Darius, next week. It's important to note that the conflict here in the story, as I thought growing up, it was mostly about Daniel versus these people. But that's not the story here. This isn't so much Daniel against, it's more It's more Yahweh against these kings. Yahweh set up humans to rule in a certain way, and when they step out of rulership in that way, they're in trouble. The obvious conflict here is between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and these arrogant kings who forget who is really in charge. They were put there because God put them there, and they will be removed when God sees fit to have them removed. As I said a couple of weeks ago, one of the main themes of the book of Daniel that I think drives a lot of Daniel's behavior is that God is in control of who is in control. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's in charge is a righteous person. Nebuchadnezzar certainly wasn't that. But in the end, the sovereignty above all things is not the rulers that we see. Sometimes we worry way too much about who's in charge because ultimately behind all of that in the heavenly realms, there is a God who's sovereign above it all. But what would it change in your life if you trusted that word from the book of Daniel? If you trusted the reality that God is in control of who is in control. I think in the midst of trouble and hardship and the breaking news stories that never seem to go off of our news stations, I think there'd be a little more laughter than there would paralyzation in our lives if we realize that. We'd be a little less charged up about it. How would it change our anxiety about elections, for instance, if we believe that God's really in control of who's in control? How would that change how much energy, emotion, and attention that we give to political rulers? Is your anxiety about the kingdoms of the world really warranted? Are your best efforts and energies given to the kingdoms of this world to try to somehow figure all that out? Or is it best given to the kingdom of God and to all that he's doing behind the scenes? See, no human power can ever approach the power of the king of heaven. And I think in the midst of seasons like this, it's important to be reminded of this because it's amazing how much we can be taken off track and how much our attention can be taken away from the kingdom that's most important, the kingdom of God. In the book of Philippians, there's a, there's a song that we've read just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, I come to this psalm a lot because it, it's so central to the early church, it seems. It's called the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And, and Paul reminds us in that passage about where, what our attitude should be like what we should mimic in our lives. And I think these verses are really important in this conversation this morning. Let me remind you, it's Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used 
to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's an amazing passage about the, the life we're called to live, not just a cross that we might die on, but it's a commitment to, to, to live into a way of life that's a humbling life, being willing to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others. But in the end, the news is the same for everyone on earth. Every knee will bow to King Jesus. In the, in the book of Daniel, at the end of every chapter, it seems like that happens. In this story, it happens again. But at the end of time, regardless of what happens in every chapter in our lives, I can guarantee you this, every single knee on earth that's ever lived will bow down to King Jesus. The choice is, will we bow our knees willingly, or will they be forced by the reality of things in the end? Because one day, every ruler who's ever exploited the poor will bow their knee to King Jesus, and their tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. One day, every ruler who's ever exalted himself above others will bow their knee to King Jesus. Every ruler who's ever commanded the slaughter of innocents, as we read in the Exodus story, will bow their knee to King Jesus. Every ruler who's ever mocked the name of God will bow their knee to King Jesus. Every ruler and every one of us will one day bow our knee to King Jesus and proclaim Jesus as Lord. We have a choice if we do that now, if we submit ourselves to Jesus, and every ruler has the same choice. But if God's in control of who's in control, and in the end, this is the promise we all have, doesn't that change our outlook on so many things in this world? Because things can be going crazy. It can be the craziest situation that you're facing with your boss. You can be wondering where in the midst of this is God. In Exodus' story, for 400 years, God's silent. After this story in Daniel, he'll be silent for almost another 400 before Jesus shows up on the scene. Silence seems to be something God does from time to time. But it doesn't change the outcome of where this is all headed. It's daunting to be a leader in this age, to know who's in charge. Sometimes it's easy to forget that. Some of you need to be reminded of that in your own business. In the end, you're going to bow your knee to Jesus. And in the end, it's not going to be all that important how all this worked out that you thought was so important. Some of you in your own family, things seem really out of control right now. Some of you are wondering about your kids and wondering if they're going to return home or not. The story's not finished. God's still at work trying to reclaim every single one of us for his kingdom's sake. In the midst of the rulers that we wonder about and the questions we ask and the prayers we pray, God's in control. And that can be said in a way that just kind of dismisses the pain that we're walking through, can it? Sometimes that's said, and I think that's the wrong message. Yes, he's in control, of course, but how does that change the reality that's in front of us? Someone needs to stand up and say something and do something. But I like the words of Philippians 2, the promise that's there. And I want to close this morning with some words, just a brief verse out of James chapter 4. James 4 verse 10 that connects with a lot of what I've talked about this morning. I think it's the thing we're all called to in this season, in the midst of thinking maybe we know what the right answer is or how to act out and get things done. Daniel has a trust about him and a humility about him. And I think this closes it well this morning. This is James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will lift you up. This is what Philippians 2 is all about, right? Jesus humbles himself. He's obedient to death, but God exalts him to the highest place. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what this world offers to us, no matter the pain that's dealt out, promises that we'll be exalted one day for those who submit to Jesus Christ. Right now, I want to close with a a prayer. I want us to give that control back to him, to trust him with the control that he has, to sing our psalms of praise. We're going to pray right now, and then we'll have one more song in just a moment. Let's pray, pray together. God, I I thank you for stories like these that remind us that as much as it seems like evil wins sometimes, as much as it seems like the world is in utter chaos, as much as it seems as if the story is, your story is losing and your kingdom isn't going to win in the end, it's not how it works out in this story, God. You've already defeated the evil one, and yet we live in this tension of already and not yet. We live in this tension of not knowing when to stand up and when to find influence in the midst of our culture. And so, God, I pray right now for each one of us as we live our lives, as we're challenged to be the people of God in this time and in this place, that you would remind us again and again, God, that every single knee will bow. So, God, help us to tell as many of those people to bow their knees now instead of later through your Spirit. God, would you allow us to share this incredible message that it's not the powerful who win in this story, God. It's those who submit themselves to you, that you're the one who is the God who's above all God. So God, this morning, I pray that we would do just that, that as we sing this song, that it would be a, a bowing of our knees, it would be a turning over of our lives again to you today. That's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.